on this episode of Uniquely Milwaukee. How do we respond to rape? How do we respond to assault accusations? What are we doing as a community? What are our standards? Our mission here at Radio Milwaukee is very straightforward, and that is to help make Milwaukee inclusive. That also means safety. Our station really has a few major components, and two of those components are music and local storytelling. I mean, that's why you're tuning in. So as an organization, we wanted to know how women are doing in the local music scene. And from what I can tell, it's, it's not that great. This episode contains content related to sexual violence. Please be advised while listening. This is Uniquely Milwaukee. It's everything you love about community stories, but more in depth. Giving the stories the time and attention they deserve. Changing perspective one episode at a time. I'm your host, Saddam Fathayed, and this is Uniquely Milwaukee, stories that stick with you. Let's say you've had a rough work week and you just want to let loose. You've decided you're going to call up your friends and you're going out. And then you're going to dance your heart out. Dancing is an incredibly powerful way to just feel free and shake off that tension. But the reality is when I'm out, I can never fully relax. I'm always on guard. I'm making sure my friends know my location and vice versa. My eyes are in everyone's drinks. And somehow my friends and I have an understanding where we create a barrier with our bodies so we can protect ourselves from unwanted touches. In the back of our minds, I feel like there's always this fear that there might be a confrontation if you say no. So we aren't letting loose. And a night that was supposed to be carefree ends up being a night full of anxiety and fear. There's a Milwaukee-based electronic DJ you might be familiar with named Fortune. She first connected to music when she went to her first rave show back in England. I was connected to the experience. I mean, the music has changed a lot, but the experience for me was for the first time in my life really feeling like I was on a level playing field with every other person in the room. Mm. That there was zero expectation, that it didn't matter what I looked like, it didn't matter what my grades were, it didn't matter what my family was like, didn't matter how I dressed, everyone was just there to feel a vibe, right? Yeah. And that's the only thing that that mattered, and, and that was very freeing for me. In 1999, she made her way in Milwaukee and quickly became rooted in Milwaukee's electronic music scene. How was that atmosphere like here in Milwaukee? Oh, it was awesome. It was really exciting. I started learning on um, my boyfriend at the time's turntables and uh, it escalated really quickly. Um, I think after about two months, I had my first gig in River West. Um, at a place that's no longer there called River West Commons. And then shortly after that, I was invited to play regularly on Tuesday nights at Quarters for their hip-hop night with Infotech and um, a couple of other fantastic Milwaukee staple DJs. Um, And then also at Mars Hotel, which was across the street and started playing parties. And yeah, it happened quite quickly. Um, And people were very supportive back then I had a lot of support from the local community but it was again 1999 was a totally different climate in so many ways that sounds amazing you know now that we're back in this like 90s early y2k trend it really feels like I'm getting a clear picture on that atmosphere 
But on the flip side, how would you describe uh, Milwaukee's music industry and its culture at, at the moment? So for my niche of the music industry, which I want to be clear, is, is the electronic portion, um, because I think Milwaukee has a very multifaceted right. music industry and music scene. It's in pretty poor shape right now. It's really distressing for me personally. So in the last three years, three to four years, we have had um, four prominent promoters or DJs or promoted DJs um, have had allegations made publicly against them in Milwaukee and Wisconsin. And... um, there's one more, two that hasn't been as public, but that was known to some people. So five, right? People, And this isn't just people who are attendees. This is people who are considered known figures. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those situations were current scenarios that happened recently. And a couple of them were scenarios that happened further back in history and um, have just crystallized for those women more recently and they found that they wanted to come forward and in every single one of those scenarios these people um, are except maybe one and that's only by his choice it's not because he's had a boundary uh, they're all still working they're all still throwing shows and DJing and the majority I would say set up pretty um intentional defense campaigns Mm -hmm. you know and went on the offensive as far as tearing down their accusers Um, there hasn't been accountability there hasn't been how do we find a solution and there hasn't been a lot a lot of uh, demand from the public for there to be that some of them have been able to rally a lot of support with sort of basically hate campaigns, you know, Mm -hmm. or gossip campaigns, however you want to frame it. And that took a toll on Fortune. So it's really been, it's really been difficult to see and upsetting for me. I've taken it personally, I have to say, as someone who's been um, invested in building Milwaukee's electronic music scene for a few decades, to see people who were not active for a lot of those years, who are couple of them were active prior and have come back mm-hmm. again in the last sort of 10 years with electronic music's resurgence and a few of them are newer. I'm, I'm pretty fuming about it, you know. When you're speaking to people for support or perhaps other people who have been dealing with this, what does that conversation look like? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting question because I've been very selective about who I talk to and realize that this is something that has to be navigated really strategically, right? I think sometimes um, things work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes outing people on social media can be beneficial and sometimes it, what we've seen in all of these scenarios is that it hasn't, hasn't helped at all. Sometimes you think people are safe to talk to and they're not actually allies, Right. So I've put a lot of thought into how we respond. And I've, I've really just um, started out by seeking out women in the music industry in other states who are not part of this state 
and talking to them about how they've navigated similar situations or their experiences. Um, I've spoken to lawyers and media professionals about how to handle information sharing because mm. that has been a big difficulty with with all of these scenarios is how do you protect survivors and also you know be responsible about information sharing I've made posts on social media that have been very much about the problem not the people mm -hmm. right how do we respond to rape how do we respond to assault accusations what are we doing as a community what are our standards and let's talk about that um, and after those posts there have been individuals who've reached out to me and said listen we want to know who we need to avoid and it's very tricky right sharing that and the problem is that there are people who maybe don't know who would like to know, but you can't actually just go around and say, hey, so-and-so's been accused of rape or assault mm -hmm. um, without being prepared that that can put you in a situation for, for legal proceedings. Right. And, and a number of people are throwing those sort of threats around towards their mm -hmm. victims. You know, you mentioned earlier that the industry is in poor shape and there really hasn't been any conversation about solutions. So were you surprised by the reaction from your peers? I was really dismayed. I, I, I said to several people outside of music who I've talked to about this, like, didn't Me Too count for anything? And it's like, no, <laughs> you know, no. All these women who are being disbelieved where the default is not to be supportive. And even if people are feeling supportive to do it quietly, which I completely get, I completely understand um, being quietly supportive, but then you've got all the loud voices in the room, mm -hmm. which are the non-supportive ones, and it's just really ugly. Do you think the, uh, the lack of support is uh, like fear-based of, you know, it's like maybe I just don't want to get involved, I don't want to like team my career, or is it because simply people just don't believe victims? Both. Yeah. Both, and um, I think also people don't like being uncomfortable, right? It's part of our human makeup is to seek comfort not and avoid being uncomfortable. So if there's someone whose shows we really like going to or whose music we really like or we've been buddy-buddy with and they've provided something that we've enjoyed, it can be really uncomfortable to go, oh, I was wrong about this person. Mm -hmm. This person's actually capable of violence or harm. And so... If the accused are then putting out a counter story, it can be much more comfortable to just go with the counter story because otherwise it's like, oh, I'm a poor judge of character. Right. Oh, I've been supporting someone kind of gross. Or now I have to do something about it. Can you look back and recall a scenario that shocked you? One woman who had a emotionally and mentally abusive experience with one of these men who has um, been accused of rape she went of her own volition to to contacted one of the venues, but she emailed them and told her of her experience. And this venue uh, told her, the management told her they would keep it anonymous and then went directly to that promoter and showed them the emails mm. and then wrote back to her and said, hey, you know, they have a different story. Sorry. And it's like, of course they have a different story. And... And a very insidious component of this particular person is it seems that um, there is a pattern of 
targeting people with mental health issues, um, which is very clever, mm-hmm. right? Because they're very easy to make unbelievable. They're very easy, much easier to manipulate those scenarios. And and um, yeah, it's 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 disheartening and it's kind of crazy to see happening. So how would you respond to the notion that, hey, it's case by case? We can't really react the same way every time. So what what do you want us to do? I think that is a really big focus for me and some of the conversations I'm having with the networks of women that that we've built up and continue to build is there should be a standard community response. Mm -hmm. Like if someone is accused of rape, you don't have to condemn that person. And I think this is where people get confused sometimes, right? Um, You do not have to hate the person. You don't have to X them out of life forever. You don't have to say they're terrible and start a hate campaign. But what we do need to do is say we can have this person operating at the moment because of this alleged behavior. And it's the alleged behavior that's an issue and that's what we have to respond to. Um, We have to say when someone's been accused of rape, we're not going to take that risk right now mm-hmm. of continuing to have them in our environments. And then on a case-by-case basis, assess how do we move forward then and yeah. and where do we go from here with this particular case. But there needs to be these standards. If mm-hmm. a woman comes forward and says someone beat the crap out of her, like we shouldn't all be rallying around that person. And yeah. to your point, you know, that, that it would be nice if there was a set way of doing things, but it's a case-by-case. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned to me that you've taken the liberty to be selective on who you perform with and which venues you choose. So what what's a good sign? I think having a policy okay. up somewhere, yeah. right? So at our events, um, we have um, a policy that we put up. It's in the bathrooms that can be seen in both bathrooms. That That's a good you can, This is what we expect from clientele at our parties, that we want you to have freedom and enjoy and have a like a wild time but creating a safer space is what Mm -hmm. enables that so without hesitation people will be thrown out for x y and z Mm -hmm. and we don't accept any bigotry or isms or any of that kind of thing and then it just makes it really clear from jump right what Mm -hmm. sort of environment you're trying to create which deters creepy people Mm -hmm. if they see that um yeah, so I think that's a really easy thing, and I would encourage more promoters and more venues to do that too. I think we see those things being very common elsewhere. Another thing is just how our staff trained, even going to the staff and, and saying, you know, like, if someone's harassing me, can I just come and tell you? Like, mm-hmm. finding those things out about venues, I think is important too and can be really helpful. So what if someone is accused and they take accountability verbally? What's your response to people that want to accept uh, that verbal apology or their form of taking accountability face value? It's such a great question because, and it's also a complicated question, so try to keep it brief. But the answer depends on who you are. So for me as a promoter, if there's a DJ who's been accused and they, they appear to take accountability... Um, and say I'm going to do better going forward, that might not be enough for me because I'm a promoter who's going to pay that person Mm -hmm. and who's invested in building safer community. 
might that be enough for people who are that person's friend or their people who go to see them play? Maybe it is, and that's where people's own principles come into it. But for me, it might not be. I would want to not have those per- that person coming to my show for maybe a year or two mm-hmm. or not working with them for maybe a year or two and seeing what they implement and how they handle themselves differently. And also, if it's appropriate... Um, so for me, I'm in touch with a number of survivors. I've been to the police stations with them and, and we talk regularly. So I'm in a position where I can check in mm-hmm. and I can say, how do you feel about this? Um, and for me, that's what matters is how the survivors are feeling, not how the, the perpetrators are feeling. Mm-hmm. But accountability is awesome and that's what we want. That's the first step. You know, after I talked to Fortune, I did some research and I came across the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. And according to their statistics, every 68 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. One out of every 10 rape victims are men. Transgender students and Native Americans are at a higher risk for sexual violence. And one out of six American women have been the victim of an attempted or completed rape. You know, if you find yourself in a position where you feel like you don't know anyone that has been a victim of sexual assault, now you do. I am a victim of rape. I've had internal conversations on if I wanted to share that. And I truly feel like that's necessary because this is an issue in our city, in our community that needs to be addressed. I honestly don't think I would have the courage to even talk about my trauma if there weren't people in this community who are incredibly passionate about making our city a safer place. Up next, we will be speaking to someone who does just that. She's actually my coworker. And you all know her as Lily Grant, our membership manager. So after the break, Lily and I will be sharing a few ways on how to help a friend in need. Stay tuned. You and your car have a lot of memories together. Long trips, traveling with friends and family, and maybe even a karaoke session with Radio Milwaukee. If you're not using your car much these days, consider donating it to support our programming. You keep all the memories, and your car will support all the music you enjoy together. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org slash cars to learn more and schedule your free donation pickup. Before the break, I revealed that I am a victim of sexual assault, a survivor of rape. And let's just sit with that for a moment because I I know this is a heavy topic. So please take your time with listening. And for those who are listening, I I really appreciate you um, allowing me to share this. To be quite frank, uh, this trauma really has redirected the course of my life. For years, uh, I, I, I was like, stuck in that feeling of fear and that tension. And I would be lying if I said I'm fully out of it. But this year, the year of 2022, something happened and uh, it really propelled me to open up, to finally open up to my family and my friends and my support system. And the way they handled me allowing them in just reminded me that although this happened to me, it doesn't define me. 
And so in this segment, Lily and I want to share with you guys a few tools where you can help a loved one if they have been put in a violent situation. So Lily, this week's topic is incredibly serious and it can be a bit difficult to digest. So so I figured since you have professional experience um, at Sojourner Family Peace Center uh, with training and managing volunteers, that we can end this episode with actionable items to help a friend in need. And I do want to point out that Lily has expertise in situations around domestic violence, but I do think this advice can help anyone that has experienced any level of violence, whether that is domestic, sexual, emotional, or even financial. And we will be following a document titled 10 Ways to Help a Friend from sinbysilence.com. Let's start with perhaps you have an inkling that your friend is being abused in some capacity. What are some warning signs to look out for? I would say... And again, like I'm trained in domestic violence, so I'll speak in terms of warning signs to look out for if somebody you care about might be in an abusive relationship. You know, I think one of the one of the first ones that we, you know, talk about in terms of red flags is um, if your friend gets a new partner who is isolating them from the folks who care about them. It's a lot easier to hurt somebody if you cut all of the people who watch out for them out of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I think it's natural when you're dating a new person to kind of go through a honeymoon period where you're together all the time and, you know, but if that honeymoon period seems to be lasting and you haven't seen your friend in a long time, consider reaching out, I would say. If it starts to look like your friend needs permission from their partner to do basic things, uh, if they never show up to anywhere alone, if you ask them questions and they're looking at their partner for how to answer, or their partner's answering everything for them, if suddenly they don't have control over their own finances, those are all things that I would say hint at a power dynamic in this relationship. I think that some people would definitely say relationships that move very quickly can be concerning. You know, that can happen sometimes when people know they know. Um, but it is in context with some of these other mm-hmm. behaviors. You know, again, it's really easy to control somebody if you get them to move in with you early in the relationship before they really know what they're getting into. I think you should trust your gut if your friend um, is in a relationship with somebody who talks to them in a way that makes you concerned. If they're suddenly not available to kind of speak freely with you, um, that, that could be a red flag. So beyond knowing about this professionally, you also have a personal tie. You have a friend that's been in a compromising situation, and it's my understanding that she is now a survivor and is in a good spot currently. She is doing great. I'm so proud of her. She's like the most resilient person I have ever known. And I'm not going to cry, but I'm very proud of her. I'm probably going to cry a little later, so it's fine. You know, like, I, I guess I would say that one reason I am so thankful that I did work at Sojourner is because um, there is so much hope and, like, incredible success that I think most people are not aware of. Like, like you can take that one in three number a couple of different ways, um, and it should feel serious, and it should feel— like unacceptable that 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 many people have been knocked off of their course in life by violence. Um, but it's also true that you look around at the folks in your life and you see how successful and strong and driven they are. And you know that it's because they had 
you know, the strength and the capacity and the support of the community to recover from what they experienced and watching folks find that within themselves is incredibly powerful. Um, and it's something to be proud of. You know, that, um, that really stuck with me uh, about, you know, being proud of coming out of something like that. The relationship I had really ended just in a violent way. And it was, it was, it was really hard for me to have pride in how far I've come. I'm 26 years old and the way I would view myself year 25 versus year 26 is day and night. And, um, and a big setback of even acknowledging or even speaking about this was that I, I feared that my image would be tainted, that people would always look at me from a point of pity. And that, that really terrified me. I, I spent years crafting how I want people to perceive me because I was worried that if they saw a crack, then they would know. Then they would know that I was someone that, um, that they would, they would know. They would know that I was like someone damaged and I didn't, I didn't want that. A trainer at Sojourner once said, um, that has really stuck with me is like, there's a really big difference between I'm sorry that happened to you and I understand where you've been. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and it's really important to, to have environments where folks who have been through similar experiences can support each other because it's not the same as talking to an empathetic person who doesn't know what that feels like. Yeah, 100%. I will say a key element in um, the shift of how I even perceive myself has been from my strong support system. So let's get back into that. So you identified that there might be some red flags. How do you approach a loved one? One of the most important things that I saw as like one of my more important jobs as a volunteer like trainer at Sojourner was sort of the, the mental adjustment we have to do with folks who want to help because I think so many people with good intentions want to swoop in and save somebody. Mm. Um, and while that that is rooted in like caring for somebody and wanting to protect somebody and that's not a bad thing, um, it's, it's not the same really as supporting somebody through an experience like this because uh, abuse, whether it's an ongoing domestic violence situation or, you know, a sexual assault that happens between folks who are not involved in a relationship, the point of that violence is that one person takes away another person's control. Mm. Um, that is what the abuser is seeking to do. And when we are trying to support somebody... Our job is not to fix the situation. Our job is to try and help whoever we're supporting feel confident enough to get back in the driver's seat of their own life. And that might mean that they're making decisions that I personally don't agree with, but it's not my life and it's not my decision. And whether or not I agree is not on the table here. Um, and I think that that can be a difficult adjustment to make if you don't have experience in this area, if you are kind of like an, 
the fixer side of the the mom friend <laughs> side of the spectrum, which is absolutely me. I am such a mom friend. Um, but you know, your goal really is to help your friend, whoever you're trying to reach, remember that they are a strong, confident person who has the right to make the calls in their own life and has the ability to do so. And if mm-hmm. that means they, you know, need you to hold their hand while they make a phone call or use your phone so that their partner doesn't know that they're reaching services or, you know, come up with a list of places they could go for help, like those are all supportive actions. Um, but at the end of the day, you really want what you really want is to watch that person grow back and blossom in their own way in their own life. One thing that helped me when I was facing a crisis was when I reached out to a friend and opened up and I said I needed help, she really took reins and sort of helped me make a plan. Um, Because these situations can be incredibly taxing emotionally and to have someone be an advocate and to really give you structure was incredibly useful. And, you know, my plan looked a little bit different than, you know, your standard safety plan. But, you know, she helped me make phone calls or emails. Uh, She helped me craft of how I wanted to explain my situation when I, you know, took a few days off at work or how I wanted to approach conversations with my sister. Uh, All these things that seemed very like simple to-do list uh, just seemed, seemed impossible at that time. And having her just sit down with me and go through that was um, was seriously just a blessing. My training is mostly to do with domestic violence safety planning. And so some practical examples of what that might look like would be like having a code word with your friend. If they text you that word, then you do whatever like you have agreed with them to do. That could be like calling the neighbor to go over and interrupt what's going on. It might be calling the police, though you should definitely, definitely, definitely only call the police if you are absolutely sure that that is what your, you know, friend wants you to do. Um, it could look like having a go bag at your house for your friend that has some clothes, some important documents, so that if they ever get in a situation where they absolutely can't be there anymore, they know that they won't be leaving behind all the stuff that they need to actually start over. It could mean, you know, if they're ready to talk to somebody, if they're ready to call one of our service providers or talk to a therapist, but they're concerned about um, somebody knowing what they're up to, it could mean letting them borrow your phone. You know, I think there's so many ways, little things you can do to help somebody uh, get to safety. And it really starts with with having a conversation with them about like, what what problems can we fix for you? What what can I do that would help you feel safe and that would help you, you know, reach out in any way that you want to without risking repercussions? So how how did you personally handle that situation with your friend? You know, when my friend, I knew my friend was in trouble. I could feel it. She had moved to uh, Atlanta, so we were not, you know, close anymore. Fit like physically, we were still good friends. But, you know, we weren't talking every day or seeing each other all the time and that kind of stuff. I could still feel something was wrong, and it just, I wasn't getting anywhere until a day when she called me and she didn't say, like, I am being emotionally manipulated. You know, she called me and said, I think I'm going crazy. Um, I just feel so sad and angry all the time, and I'm really not myself, and I'm not proud of the way I'm treating people, and I don't know who this person is or why I feel like this. And I knew that this was a moment where she had called me because she trusted me for my real opinion. So I, I just helped her unpack how she was feeling. 
And then I told her from my perspective, like, I think you're upset at your partner because he's doing all of these things to you that you don't feel good about. And he's telling you that it's fine and you're trying to not make waves and saying that it's fine because we agreed it's fine. But you're, what you're saying and what your gut is telling you are different. And, and I think that a lot of people don't understand how, how difficult it can be to identify when something is wrong, you mm-hmm. know, when you're trapped in a relationship that doesn't feel right to you, when you're starting to feel uncomfortable with the way you've been treated, but you don't have the words to put to that yet. So I think in the beginning, it can really just be about expressing to your friend that you see that something is going on and that you're open to talking about it. And you know, trying not to push too hard, making sure that any of those conversations are happening in an environment where they are actually safe to talk to you about it. I I think that's how you can open the door. My foot in the door was I mailed her a book. You know, I know I know there's a lot of discourse about Rupi Cower. That is such a you, by the way. But <laughs> you know what? Rupi Cower, I sent her a book of that poetry, and that was why she called me. Mm. So I gave the pretense of like she could talk to me about that. It seemed to her partner that we were talking about something totally, in, you know, innocent. But that was my foot in the door. Um, so I think that even if you can't right now find a way to talk to them candidly about what's going on, if you really want to um, try to throw this person a rope, I would say try to stay in their life to the extent that you can safely. Mm-hmm. You know, because... Eventually, probably an opportunity will come up. Lily, that is such solid advice. Not only because you're opening the door, but when someone is abused, it's very easy to feel like you no longer have a support system. So that can be like a simple reminder that you're there for them. I want to point out that healing is a long process and it's never linear. So your support doesn't have to be that immediate role. It can be years after that. The advice that I'm going to give is going to sound incredibly simple because it is. And it's just, it's just being there. The people I seeked out were very intentional with how we hung out. Even if it was going for a walk or, you know, inviting me over for dinner Just by having my loved ones around me reminded me that I am more than the abuse I endured, that I am funny, I am kind, I am a messy cook, I am a complex human being, and it really colored my perception of self. You are absolutely right to bring that up. I have a tendency to be way too business, but you know, (laughs) like loving and appreciating your friend as a whole person. Mm, Yeah. Um is the fun part of this, mm-hmm. is the really rewarding part of this, and it is meaningful, like, it would mean a lot to anybody. Right. Um, but I think it's especially true to, you know, like you said earlier, we don't want people to feel like that one experience they had it defines who they are as a person. Um, and as a friend, you are perfectly positioned to show somebody all of the things that they are to you. Mm-hmm. Lily and I ended our conversation on something that I think is incredibly valuable to share. I'm not sure if you noticed, but throughout this entire episode, the perpetrators were invisible in our conversation. And if we look back at the statistics, not only does it mean that you know someone who has been a victim, there's also a high chance that you know someone who has been violent in a relationship. So we've talked about how to show up as a friend, 
And that could also look like holding those individuals accountable. Lily said something to me that I think will always stick with me. Loving somebody means telling them when you think they could be doing better. Loving someone means telling them when you think they could do better. I mean, isn't that such a beautiful thing? So if you're in a position where it's safe to have a conversation with someone who you know or maybe suspect hasn't been treating their partners or people with respect and dignity, I think you owe them a conversation. I just want to say I'm incredibly thankful to have someone like Lily on staff here at Milwaukee just to be an advocate about uh, this topic. And if you don't have a Lily in your life, head over to RadioMilwaukee.org slash S-A-A-M. We have a support page where there are Milwaukee area resources that you can refer to. I'm your host, Salam Fatayed. Thank you to Nate Imig, our executive producer. Kenny Perez, our audio engineer. Thank you for our marketing team led by Sarah Lar. Graphics and our wonderful logo is made by Aaron Bagada. Our community engagement manager is Maddie Reardon. And Dan Ryder handles our social media accounts. And a big special thank you to our city-loving members for making Uniquely Milwaukee possible. Tune in next Monday for our next episode. <laughs>